number of years ago, I'd, I learned the difference, um, medically speaking, between the word respond and react. Respond to something is positive, react to something is negative. And for whatever reason, these days, I feel like I'm constantly reacting. How about you, right? Because last week, if you remember, when we were talking about Memorial Day, it was right on the heels of the tragedy that occurred in in San Antonio, and, and I thought that was a rough week. And then this week happened. And Tulsa joined that sad list of cities that have dealt with mass casualties. And I, I just stunned. I was, uh, I don't even remember what I was doing, but I got a text from a friend of mine in Florida saying, hey, are you Okay first thing I did was check the weather to see if we had tornadoes or something like that. I had no idea. And I said, what are you talking about? And he, he said, check the news. And I did. And I'm like, I, I just, I can't believe it. <clears throat> it's tragic. It's horrific. It was evil. There's no way around it. But I also suspect that there is far more to that story than what's being reported. I'm just going to say that out loud. I think there's more to it. And before the the politicians start jumping to oversimplified and ineffective solutions, maybe we ought to have a real conversation about mental health in this country. Just a thought. There's a well-documented experiment um, that's been replicated time and time again, and I think it kind of helps us understand maybe how we're feeling collectively as a group of people. So, Some researchers take a cage, and they put a rat in the cage, and they just periodically, but consistently, um, give an electric shock to the rat. And over a relatively short period of time, as you can imagine, the rat becomes withdrawn and very, very anxious. Because the, the stimulus, that's what they call it, the shock, occurs randomly, but it, but it happens. And so what happened um, with the original um, research and then later on as, as this uh, uh, experiment was replicated, at some point in the process, they add a second rat to the cage. And in a relatively short period of time, um, that rat figures out that there's something wrong. But here's the surprise. We don't necessarily have two rats that are anxious and withdrawn because every single time this experiment has taken place, the rats turn on each other. They resort to violence towards one another because of the constant pressure and anxiousness of potential shocks. Can you imagine? well-documented, replicated multiple times. We know this. And I frankly, I wonder, I wonder when I look back at the last few years, I mean, I mean, think about this, okay? We've had a global pandemic. Politics and science layered on top of that, okay? Regardless of, of where you fall on that, let's be honest, it hasn't been friendly, 
And then we had supply chain issues. Remember this? And now we have inflation. There's a war in Eastern Europe threatening to expand, and now monkeypox. These stimuli, these shocks, when piled on everyday stress, because I know none of you have like zero stress in your life, right? You got to pay your bills and you got to get the kids to school and you got to deal with that boss at work or that coworker or you know how it goes, right? You have everyday stress and then you have these kind of big examples piling on top of all of it and we all face it and I'm surprised quite frankly that we haven't seen more violence. I got to be honest. God help us. Because I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing some of the things that we're seeing. And I want to take a pause right here, right at the very beginning. And I want to, I want to remind us of something. Because Jesus gave us a very simple ritual. And he coupled it with a very powerful command. He said, remember. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. So common. And after he had given thanks, he passed it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after the supper, he took the cup. Very common. You're going to have a cup on the table. And after he had given thanks, he passed it to his disciples, and he said, take and drink. And every time you do, remember me. Remember. And as we consider the pressures of our time, because these are extraordinary times, and we grieve the evil that's come upon our city, I think it's a good thing that we remember together our God who loves us and will one day put everything to right. I think we have to remind ourselves of that. And I'm so glad we have this simple ritual to do it. At Thrive Church, we have what's called an open table. That means if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. Oh my goodness. I'm so thrilled that we can do this together. But normally, what we, we try to do is we allow everybody to kind of do it at your own pace and do when you want to and, and, and when it's meaningful for you. But I thought that today of all days, it might be a really good idea if we did it together. So we've got these fun little chalices, right? And let's take the bread... Does anybody need any? <clears throat> and let's stand. Jesus, you are the bread of life. Let us choose life together.
we remember that Jesus willfully chose to have his blood spilled for us. An ultimate sacrifice. And through it, we have life. And again, as we drink, let's choose life. Kind Father, you know what's befallen our city, our country, (laughs) the entire world. And we as your people once again cry out to you because we want to remember that you're still on the throne and that you're still good. And despite the evil choices that men tend to make in their hearts and in their minds. You are still God and we can trust you. And so I pray as we have taken the elements today that they would become part of us and that it would be life-giving in spite of the darkness. That we might truly become salt and light in a world that desperately needs flavor and seasoning and illumination. We, your people, invite you to come and be a part of what we do and how we do it. Not just here when we gather together, but when we go home and we go to our work and we do the things that you have asked us to do. And I pray your blessing on these people that you would keep them healthy, that you would keep them safe, that you would watch over them and speak to them in a way that they understand so that they can have the confidence that you are guiding them towards something kingdom-oriented. We want to see your kingdom. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Thank you for that. Well, today in the church calendar is what we call Pentecost Sunday. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this today um, because most of the time when we talk about Pentecost, (laughs) it seems like we um, associate it with a particular um, uh, tribe of denominations, Pentecostals, right? Or we um, tend to Uh, associate the word Pentecost with certain behaviors or practices of those denominations, right? We tend tend to do that. But the truth of the matter is the term and the idea is far, far older um, than what we actually realize. It it actually refers to a Jewish festival that we find in the Old Testament that occurs exactly 50 days after Passover, okay? Okay. Now, we're going we're gonna to come back to these two festivals from time to time as, as we go along. But if you're interested, you can always read about it in Leviticus chapter 23. Um, and uh, Leviticus is a very interesting book. I highly recommend it if you are an insomniac. It will take care of that relatively quick. But we find some of these uh, detailed festivals, and you can find it in Leviticus chapter 23. But the, the festival itself... <coughs> is when the people of Israel would bring the first fruits of the wheat harvest um, to the temple as an offering, okay? 
So the idea here is, is that as um, uh, people prospered and they, they grew their crops, that they would offer the first 10% to God, the principle of first fruits. And so what you would do is that you would plant in the fall, you would harvest, uh, if I remember right, in the springtime, and then you would bring these, um, uh, bring a tenth of that to, uh, to the temple as an offering. But interestingly enough, over time, this uh, festival was also associated with covenant renewal. It commemorated the giving of Torah on Mount Sinai. So I want, I want you to think about this with me for just a moment. Because Passover is that moment when Israel remembers that God rescued them out of the, the hands of Egypt, rescued them from slavery. And 50 days later, they celebrate the giving of the law. And arguably, these are the two most central events in, in Israel's history. One, God heard them cry in their slavery, rescued them, and then created a relationship with them, this covenant relationship, I will be your God, you will be my people, and they all said yes. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why I'm a Wesleyan Arminian in my theology, because at that moment, at the foot of Mount Sinai, they could have said no. They chose to say yes. Now, did God make it easy for them? Of course he did. But the point is, is that they had the choice. And so, we've got these two festivals commemorating two very important events. You tracking with me? Does this make sense? The history of, of, of the Jewish culture. Now, the Christian event is related to Jesus and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and so I want to look at two familiar passages today. We'll uh, kind of read these in brief. Um, but we're going to be in the book of Acts today. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you might want to punch in Acts chapter 1. We'll eventually be in Acts chapter 2. But if not, that's okay. I'll have it on the screen for you. Okay? So here it is. Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. This is Luke writing. Um, he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Okay, one brief little note here, because you know I'm interested in things like literary context. This is the name Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? And so some, because uh, he mentions Theophilus in Luke chapter 1 as well. Okay, Now Theophilus, interestingly enough, um, is the actual name of some people. I mean, it was a, I don't know if I would call it a common name, but it was a name. But Theophilus also can be divided into Theo, um, Philus, two names. One is God, and Philus is brother of, or friend of, or brother in God. And so he could be referring to a single person, or he might be referring to people who would come later, to you and me. And he's trying to tell us, in the first book, he endeavored to sit down to write an account of Jesus. And here, he said, in my former book, Theophilus, that's addressed to you and me, I think, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, right? So keep that in mind, he is writing with you in mind. So he goes on, after verse 2, verse 3. He says, after his suffering, Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. Now, we just kind of read this over, but I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, come on now, right? I mean, you know, you thought Jackie Chan movies were cool when they had the wires that were invisible and he's flying all around doing martial arts and that kind of thing. This is like for real, right? This is for reals. And this is, that had to have been something. I, I can't imagine. So Jesus died and was resurrected, and then he ascended. Now, I, I, you, you've got to think about this because these are real people, right? They're living a real life. They haven't read the end of the book. So imagine this. <clears throat> you are called by Jesus a rabbi. You have been given the honor of doing what all Jewish men would have hoped um, for themselves, what they hope for their sons, is to be worthy enough to follow in the footsteps of a rabbi. And they did this for three years. And then all of a sudden, what seemed like all of a sudden, they go to Jerusalem and everything does a 180. And he's arrested. He is beat up. He is then judged and crucified. And he dies. Um, I don't know how many shocks that is. I have no idea, but that's a lot. Would you agree? Your teacher, the one that you've just spent all this time following, now gets arrested, <clears throat> and he's executed. And you have to wonder for yourself, am I next? That's a natural human sort of thing. Then, three days later, they find out that that tomb is empty. <laughs> and there, become, there begins a series of stories that occurs, at least according to Luke, where not only is he the tomb empty, but Jesus is up and walking around. It wasn't just that somebody had come and done something with the body, like desecrated it or done something to it or whatnot. No, 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 no. It's empty and Jesus is walking around. That's shock number two. Would you agree? Wait a second. I don't have any categories for that. And then third, he starts hanging out with you. And, and he's talking with you. And he's teaching you. And not just you, but a group of people so you know you're not crazy because there are other people around. And then, as he's teaching them, as he's con conversing with them, it's a little different than the way it was before, obviously, because all these other things happen. The next thing you know, he's floating up there. And you watch him go into the clouds, and he's hidden. That's at least shock number three, if not four, five, or six. I mean, you want to talk about stimuli, right? My goodness, how do you deal with that? Amazing, amazing story to think about. Now what? What do you do? And on top of it, they don't go on the lamb. Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is the place where Jesus was arrested and crucified. 
I don't know about you, but I've got a bug out bag ready to go. I would want to get out of that town very quickly. But Jesus says, no, no, don't leave. Something's going to happen. Okay, imagine how you would feel. Here's a pro tip. You might want to write this one down. When you're asking the question, now what? When the next few steps are in doubt or an unclear, you should probably always refer to the last thing Jesus told you. That's the pro tip. Always refer to the last thing Jesus told you. Which means you got to be listening to Jesus. You're doing that, right? I mean, you're carving out time, trying to listen for God, right? This is the reason why we, we, um, we encourage all of um, disciples, all our disciples, to actually try to listen for God. Because there are going to be moments when things are unclear. And you're going to doubt yourself, and you're going to doubt the counsel. And, and Have you ever been in one of those set of circumstances where you could easily talk yourself in or out of something? Yeah. Yeah, that happens to me a lot. And I'm not just talking about where to go to go for dinner, right? You can talk yourself in and out of things all the time. And when you get to that moment, it's always a good idea. What did, what did God say to me last? Let's do that. So fortunately, the last thing that he said to them, don't leave Jerusalem. So they waited and you actually know what happens, because we've read this before, and I want to I pick this up again. When the day of Pentecost came, remember 50 days after the Passover, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. That had to have been something amazing. Can't even imagine. Would have been loud too, I would have thought. But I want you to notice something. He said, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So we're not talking about they're unified in heart. They were actually sitting in the same room, right? We get, we, let's be clear about what's going on here. They were all together in one particular place. So Jesus says to them, wait in Jerusalem. And so they do it, they do it together. We call this community, by the way. And I think it's important because I think the only way to endure tragedy is to not do it alone. It's to do it with other people. I'm very concerned. I I wasn't sure I was going to say this, but I'm going to say it. I'm very concerned that there is no one, virtually no one, that has any type of leadership, whether um, elected leadership or, or influence or whatever. I don't hear anybody even attempting to try to unify this country. That bothers me a lot. So guess what? We got to do it we've got to figure out how to do it ourselves. Because there's nobody in leadership doing it, so it's got to be grassroots. 
And I know, I know, I know the question that you're asking in your heart. It's the same one I ask from myself from time to time. How do we unify when we're so divided? Oh my gosh, I don't know. But here's what I, what I believe. I believe that God knows. And I believe that's the only way that we're going to get past any of this is to trust him in all of it. So when we're all together, we have to make time for one another and invite the Holy Spirit to be a part of it. I have to say, I think this is one of the deepest hopes. Mm, I think this is one of the deepest longings of my own heart. Is that when Holy Spirit meets with us, as we meet together in homes and small groups. I love when we're together on Sundays in our gatherings and we, we feel the presence of God in the room. I love that. I, I'll, I'll, I'll do that all day, every day. I love that. But what I, I'm hoping to see is that when we gather together in smaller groups, we feel that same presence. And we start hearing stories about it. I know that we will have at least stepped a little closer to the kingdom of God. I want to offer just two thoughts on Pentecost itself. A couple things to think about. You have an Old Testament and New Testament understanding of Pentecost. And they're very similar. In fact, as I was trying to figure this out, I had to draw it because, you know, I don't understand anything if I can't draw it. So I had to draw it out, and the parallels became <laughs> frighteningly uh, similar to one another. So let's, let's take a second, and let's, let's think our way through this a little bit. So Pentecost came to commemorate the giving of the law, the covenant that was created between Israel and God, okay? And so the, the best way to describe this is the giving of the law. You, you have this, like, I mean, true central moment. If, here's the deal. If we went to a Jewish synagogue today, there would very likely be reference to the giving of the Torah to the people of Israel. That's how important it is. That's how much of, uh, uh, of the Jewish identity is wrapped up in this event, okay? Does this make sense? Okay, this is a big deal. So it's the giving of, of the law. <clears throat> Seminal moment in Israel's history. And frankly, the Torah and all of it rec- uh, uh, represents actually organized the people. They organized the, their lives around this, the, um, uh, this law. And, and it it affected the way that they, they live. It was the way to live if you were, if you were Jewish. And so I, the best way to kind of describe it is that it's at least relationship guidelines. God's going to do this. You're going to do that. That's the way our relationship is going to be. And it, and it d- clearly defined the nation of Israel for thousands of years. It's an important thing to remember. But at, at the same time, in the New Testament it kind of reframes all of it together because it's not the giving of the law, it's the giving of the Spirit. 
God gave the Spirit at that moment, and the Holy Spirit obviously has, has gifts. It's a seminal moment in the, in, the, in the church's history, and frankly, it organizes all of us as God's people. It's not about the way to live, it's the empowerment to live. And it's not just relationship guidelines, it's in relationship enablement. You know, the only way that you can really love God and love others is if you've got a changed heart because I'm really good at loving myself and, and you're really good at loving yourselves too. And so sometimes we need, we need that divine em- enablement to love others. <clears throat> and I think this is really fascinating to me because you have this, um, this idea of uh, the Passover being the rescue and then you have the um, 50 days later, you have um, the law that's given, which is, is that relationship that they had with God. But if you flip this around and you think about the New Testament, the rescue was the cross. And 50 days later, you've got the relationship, which is through the Holy Spirit. Do you see the parallels? There is clearly a rescue and then a relationship. Clearly a rescue, then a relationship. You want to talk about the Old Testament being reframed? Here it is. Pentecost is a big deal, both for Jews and for Christians. I think I'll spend um, a few cups of coffee on this one. I got to be honest. There's some parallels here that are just amazing to me. Also, after his suffering, this is uh, Acts chapter 1 again, after his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. I, I don't know how many times I've read this. I've missed that phrase. And another author I read, I don't know, several months ago, pointed this out, and it really caught my attention that Jesus spent 40 days (laughs) convincing the disciples that he was alive. Yeah, I, let that sink in for a moment. I mean, 40 days, he presented them with proofs. He's trying to convince them, I'm alive, it's really me. And I, 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 you know what? Oh, I'm gonna, oh, I'm gonna get in trouble for this. I think there's a lot of people in the church today, it's taken them not 40 days to figure out Jesus alive, it's taken them 40 years. Because I think sometimes as a church, we, we say that Jesus is alive, but we don't necessarily live that way. Now, I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad because I'm just as guilty. But think about it. He gave convincing proofs that he was alive. It took the disciples 40 days. I think, I think it'd take me a little bit longer. I don't know about you. But sometimes I wonder if um, perhaps the challenges that we face day to day are actually opportunities in disguise. I know that sounds easy to say, but it's not. It's almost like God looks at the circumstances that we're in And he's just up there and he's next to you and he's saying, 
Ask me. Come on, ask me. I want you to ask me about this. And we operate again as if he isn't alive and we think that we have to do this on our own. And it's, it's just so striking to me. It's like he spent 40 days with those disciples trying to convince him he was alive and I'm not sure that we're any different. I think he's constantly giving us opportunities to understand that he's alive and he's operating in our lives. And if we listen and we respond, we'll see God move and that builds the faith our faith, and it builds the kingdom. And that sounds, partic- um, sounds great, but the truth of the matter is, and I, I really want you to understand this, God wants you to know that he's alive. Otherwise, why would he have spent 40 days with them trying to convince them of it? Some of us, we can't, we can't even stand trying to convince our kids in 40 minutes, right? Convince them of anything. But here he is, 40 days, and he's constantly saying that to us. Why? Because he wants us to know, I'm alive. You know what? The tomb's still empty. I want you to understand that. I'm here. I'm here with you, and I want to be with you, and I want us to be together, and we got stuff to do. I think that's kind of exciting. I don't know about you, but I think that's a really powerful sort of thing. And so when we gather together on Sunday mornings, it's the reason why we celebrate. Um, It's why we expect to meet with God, because he's alive. And if that happens here and you feel the presence of God, guess what? You can feel that same presence when you're alone with him or when you're in a small group with him. It doesn't matter. The point is, he's alive and he wants to be with his people. Now, that's a simple statement to make. But when I watch the news, I need to be reminded of that. And I suspect you do as well. Because otherwise, it just seems like the darkness begins to close in and we end up in kind of this weird, depressed, demoralized state. And I see it all over the place. But there's a God who's alive and he's offering us opportunity after opportunity to say, hey, are you going to trust that I am alive, that I've got something going on here, and that you get to be a part of it? You get to be a part of it. Ask me, ask me, ask me. Now again, I want you to be absolutely clear about what I'm saying here. I refuse to bludgeon you with the Bible. This is not um, an opportunity for you to feel bad about yourself because you know, you're feeling like you're falling down or you're tripping up or whatever it is. That's the voice of shame. Be silent. Doesn't need, you don't need to hear that. But rather, I want you to hear the voice of a God who loves you, who says, look, I, I understand where you are, and, and guess what? I've not run out of patience. I haven't run out of patience even with you. <laughs> I'm going to keep giving you opportunities because I want you to know that I'm alive. God wants you to know that he's alive, and he's alive with you. Heavenly Father, Sometimes the darkness is just so great. Sometimes it's hard to even get out of bed. And Lord, sometimes it's easy to forget.
that you are alive. You are well, and you are interested in us being part of your kingdom. Help us to see what's really going on. Help us to see that you are not surprised by tragedy. You don't cause it, but you can redeem it. You give human beings free will to do stupid things, and we take you up on that time and time again. But you're a God who loves. You're a God who redeems. And for whatever reason, you want us to be a part of it. So Lord, as we spend our day today with our families, with our friends, whatever the day looks like, my prayer is that you would once again show us that you are alive. That it wouldn't take us 40 days to be convinced of it. That it wouldn't take us 40 minutes, that maybe it might take us 40 seconds because our first inclination would be, God, you're alive, what do you want to do here? You know, church, I fully confess that my journal, I got lots of, I got lots of griping and moaning. I got a lot of hurt that I've written out and I've got plenty of doubt that uh, jumps off the page. But I'm learning that God is alive and that God still has ideas for me. And so if that's true, I know that he has ideas for you. So God, would you continue to speak to us that we wouldn't listen to the voice of shame that might, might tell us something ridiculous like we can't do it or we're not spiritual enough or <laughs> the one that reminds us of our past and how many times we've fallen off the wagon. You don't give up on us, Lord. I pray that would just saturate our hearts, that you'd never give up on us. And so, Lord, um, as we sing this last song, um, Thrive Church is your church. I've said that from the very beginning. <laughs> I'm just an associate. So, Holy Spirit, if you've got something you want to say, you want to do, floor is yours. We uh, not just invite you to come, we expect you because you're alive. In Jesus' name, amen.